episode 264 of the legacy podcast this is going to be an exposition of first john 5 13 through 24 that is a message that i delivered while i was pastor of mount Tabor baptist church earlier this year and i appreciate you listening Norman Vincent Peale, which some of you have probably heard he wrote the popular book, The Power of Positive Thinking, once said this, Believe in yourself, have faith in your abilities. Without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy. Is that true? I think we need to compare that or contrast it with what it says in Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put the confidence in men. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. I like the way the hymn Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah says it. It says, Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah, O my soul, Jehovah, praise. I will sing the glorious praises of my God through all my days. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust remaining or returning, and his purposes shall end. So are we to have confidence as Christians? Are we to live our lives with confidence? Well, I think that the passage we look at today speaks very clearly to that issue. And yet I think that it is important that we understand on whom we are to have confidence and on what we are to have confidence. In verse 12, we are instructed uh, that we can indeed have confidence. And in verse 13, it says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So first of all, we have to know who it is he's talking about here. We already have uh, seen through First John that uh, he wrote his letter to Christians. Now, the Gospel of John was written so that people might come to faith. It was an evangelistic track. It was a, it was a way to share the Gospel with those who did not yet believe. First John, however, was a letter to Christians. And so he is writing to the Christians to encourage them on various issues. And so we see here it says, these things I have written to you. These things means all that he has already said. He wrote these things to those who believe, but not just believe anything, but believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. And so what he, he goes on to explain over and over again in these passages is that we can know certain things. We can be absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, confident of certain things because he has revealed them to us and because we believe these things. And so it, the word know here is used seven times in these verses. 
And the idea is that we can have a measure of confidence. And then he goes on and he lists or he identifies or describes certain things that we can have confidence in. The first one is this. True believers can have confidence in their salvation through Jesus. In their salvation through Jesus. I already briefly mentioned it, but in verse 13, it says, Who believe in the name of Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. Notice how it says there, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, let me ask you this. This is a question we often ask of anybody. In fact, it is a great way to enter into a conversation to share the gospel with someone is to ask that very question. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you will go when you die from this earth? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? If you ask most people on the street, if you know beyond a shadow of doubt, Where they will go, what do you think most people will say? Well, I hope I go to heaven, is what they're going to say. Well, there is a difference between knowing and hoping, isn't there? And John wants us to be confident. He wants us to have a confidence that we can know that we can have eternal life. Now, this is interesting because Christianity, true Christianity, is the only religion that teaches that you can know that you can have eternal life. I mean, think about it. There are even Christian sects, Christian groups, such as Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Some people don't call them Christians. Some people call them Christian sects. So they're, they're a cult. They're Christian cults kind of thing. But if you ask a Mormon who comes to your house and knocks on the door and wants to share the good news about Jesus, if you ask them if they are certain that they will go to heaven, what is their response? I hope so. If I live a good life, that's why I'm out here sharing with you guys the good news, because I hope I can get there. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness, if they are going to get there, what are they going to say? I hope so. If you ask a Muslim, if they're going to get to heaven, what do you think they will say? I hope so. In fact, uh, there has been claims, and I wanted to... Just comment on this briefly. There, there has been some claims that um, some of the reason why there are terrorists among the Muslims is because uh, they have been taught that if they uh, take their life in jihad, if they take their life doing some kind of uh, activity for Allah in the name of Allah, that they will immediately be sent to their heaven and be exposed to all the the 700 virgins or whatever it is, perpetual virgins in paradise and all this kind of stuff. That's nowhere in the Quran. If they're taught that, it's not from their holy book. Um, in fact, over and over again in the Quran, it says that if they take their own life, uh, that they are refused paradise, that they are refused heaven. And in fact, uh, Muslims regularly pray for Allah to bless Muhammad with peace. But why would Muhammad be affected by the prayers of Muslims? The reason is that according to Islam, even Muhammad didn't know whether he would experience paradise with Allah. Well, how do you like that? Going through your entire life, not knowing where you'll go. Talk about stress headache. I mean, that that would be too much. So as Christians, can we have confidence? Can we have confidence that we know we will have Eternal life. And then he goes on. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 
In other words, that gives us some motivation. We know that we will experience eternal life, so why stop believing? No, we continue to believe on the name of the Son of God because we know that we will have eternal life. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, for we know, Paul says this, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Do you know that? Are you confident of that truth? <clears throat> I, um, I have been uh, helped a great deal by um, iPhone or uh, this uh, smartphone navigation systems. You know what I'm talking about where you can plug in the coordinates you're going to. And sometimes your newer cars have this where you can plug in uh, where you're going to and the navigational system will take you there. Uh, prior to that point, I had a lot of confidence in my ability to uh, direct myself as to where I was going. Joanna used to get very upset with me because very often what would happen is we'd be going to a place and I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 we just go this way. And she would say, are you sure? And I would say, oh, yeah, yeah, we just, we just go this way, take left, right, and we'll be there, right there. Well, after a left and a right, we're not any closer to where we need to go. And she goes, are you sure where you're going? Uh, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure. After a couple more turns, she'll say, are you lost? No, 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 I'm not lost. I, I think I know where I'm going. Well, you notice, at first I was, I was confident. I'm sure I know where I'm going. After a couple wrong turns, I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure. And then it's like, well, maybe, maybe not. By the time I go around the circle four or five times, it's like, well, okay, I'm lost. That, that shouldn't be the way it is in our Christian life, is it? We should know for a certainty where we're going. There, there should be no doubts about it. We should have absolute confidence that we have salvation in Jesus. If you are certain that you have eternal life, how then should you live? Well, you should live with gratitude. You should live like this world is not all there is. That we're just passing through. That we shouldn't put all our hopes and all our treasures in this life because it's not the best life now. In fact, we will experience a better life in the world to come. And we should preach the gospel to those who have yet to hear so that we might be able to bring along with us as many as we can. If you are not certain as to your eternal destiny, don't delay. Be certain. Be absolutely sure. Trust in Christ, in His salvation that He offers you that you might be able to know that you have eternal life. Secondly, true believers can have confidence in their prayers in Jesus. In their prayers in Jesus. Look with me in verse 14. It says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now let's break that down a little bit. First of all, he does say that we can have confidence that if we ask anything in his name. Now, first of all, we have to understand that he's not saying a blanket statement. If we ask anything, that he'll hear us. It doesn't say that. It says if we ask anything according to his will or in his name, it says. And so we can't leave here and say, well, the preacher says, if you just ask for it, he'll give it to you. And so I'm going to ask for that, that new Dodge truck that I saw down there at the store or at the, at the uh, Dodge dealership. And, you know, it's uh, decked out, you know, and perfect. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. Right. He's saying that if we ask anything according to his will. Now, do we know that he wants us to have a new Dodge truck? Well, we don't know that. 
So we can't pray with certainty about that. But what does he do say? What does he do say? That's not right. What does he say? There we go. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, the idea of hearing here is not just hearing as in he hears all our prayers, doesn't he? Hearing here carries the idea of answering our prayers. In fact, that's what he says in the next verse. He says, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we have asked of him. You hear the confidence there? We know that if we ask according to his will, he will answer that and we will have the petition that we ask of him. What a great confidence that we have. And then in verse 16 and 17, he illustrates this. But you know, who am I to correct the scriptures? But I wish he would have given us a better illustration. Uh, this is complicated. It really is. Because if you read this, what does it say? It says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death. Well, what sins lead to death? And which sins don't lead to death? The reality is the scriptures say that all sin and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. So all sins lead to death. So that's the first complication. But secondly, what does it say here? If anyone sins or if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sins not leading to death. In other words, when we see somebody sinning, we should pray for them, pray that God brings them to repentance, they be brought to repentance, and they have life. But it says, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. Well, what does that mean? How do, how do we know when someone is sinning a sin that leads to death, and someone who is sinning a sin not leading to death? I don't know. It's complicated. Here's, here's a couple things that we do know. Number one, death is referred to in several ways in the scriptures. There is a physical death. There is a spiritual death. And there is the second death or the eternal death in the lake of fire. So the first thing is, what death is he talking about? Is he talking about the, the, the physical death that would result from doing a sin that would result in capital punishment, for example? That the, the state actually, the jurisdictions of the state actually takes the person's life? Is that a sin leading to death in that standpoint? Or, or is it a sin leading to death like we see in the Old Testament where somebody um, takes on uh, a, a role they shouldn't and takes the role of God and God strikes them dead and opens up the ground and they fall in or something like that? Is that a sin leading to death? Or, or is it a, an eternal death, a, a separation from God for all eternity like the unpardonable sin? Uh, again, uh, we're not told exactly what it refers to here. And then we have that complication in verse 16 where it says, I do not say that you should pray about that. How do we tell? Um, if, if somebody has sinned, it seems, a sin that would put them on the cross or put them in capital punishment like the thief on the cross, should we give up hope on the thief on the cross that actually came to faith at the very end of his life? Is there still room for prayer for that person? Well, there is. So what are we to make of this? Well, I think one thing that we can be certain of as it relates to this, well, in verse 17, by the way, uh, helps us have a little bit of clarity. When it says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. So one thing that we can conclude is that those who are outside of faith, those who are not in Christ, everything they do, that is unrighteous, 
leads to death. Does it not? But on the other hand, those of us who are in Christ, no matter what we do, it doesn't lead to death. Why? Because we have passed from death into life. And so I think what we can gain from this or what we can gather from this is that if somebody is outside of the faith and have stubbornly rebelled against God, refused to hear what God has called of them to do, there is no obligation for us to pray for them. I think what we have here is an example of what it says over in Hebrews chapter 6, which is again another sticky passage, but let me read it to you here. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him in open shame. Now what does that refer to? It apparently refers to those people who have tasted of God. They have seen the miracles of God. They have seen what he has done. They've experienced his grace in some way. They have uh, come under some kind of influence of the power of the God who is living and true and real. And they have said, I don't want that. Why would it be then that it is impossible for such to come to faith? Because there's no there's no more that can be shown to them. They have seen all that could possibly be shown to them regarding who God is. And so uh, what John, I believe, is saying in this case is he says it's a waste of time for to pray for such a person. Because they, they've already been exposed to everything that they could possibly be exposed to when it comes to the gospel. But I think it's important to note here that he doesn't say don't pray for them. He basically says it's a waste of time to pray for them. He says, I do not say that you should pray for them. He's not saying you can't, but he's saying, why bother? And the reality is, um, if someone has rejected the gospel that's been clearly presented to them, and they've seen all that they could possibly see of the power of God, and they still refuse, what else is going to change their mind? And so... um, I think that's what is being indicated here. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, says something similar. It says, um, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? And so the question is, if we, as parents, do what is right for our kids most of the time, and we're wicked and evil people, how much more will God, who is good, grant to us, His children, what we desire in petition and prayer? Of course. He will. And so the confidence that we have in prayer is the confidence that we have in a good God to give to his children what is good for us. John chapter 15, verse 7 says this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Notice again the conditions. If you abide in me 
and my words abide in you? In other words, if your thoughts are constantly on the thoughts of God, you'll ask what he desires, which is the same thing you desire, and it will be done for you. Um, John chapter 14, verse 13 says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. So do you want your prayers to be answered? Do you want to have confidence that when you pray something, that it will be answered? Well, pray the will of God. This is, this is what it is when we say that we pray in Jesus' name. It's not just to tack on some kind of benediction to our prayers. In fact, the, the scriptures teach us that when we pray in Jesus' name, it means that we are praying as though He were praying. We are praying through Him. We are praying His will. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And when we pray in Jesus' name, can we have confidence that He will do as He desires to do and to answer our prayers? Certainly we can. Know the will of God and then pray it. That's the confidence that we have in our prayer. Number three, true believers can have confidence in their perseverance through Jesus. In their perseverance through Jesus. We see this in verse 18. It says, we know, again, That whoever is born of God does not sin, but he has been born of God, keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. This, again, confirms the truth regarding those who sin but are of Christ. They do not commit sin unto death because uh, they are in Christ. And because they are in Christ, their sins are washed away. So it reconfirms what was mentioned in verses 16 and 17. But more importantly, it teaches that there is a perseverance that takes place. There is a continuing. There is a keeping that takes place in the believer's life. And so whoever is born of God, that is, this is the prerequisite for those who will be able to endure to the end. They must first be born again. And it says they do not sin. The form of the verb here carries the idea of a continuous activity. Those who do not continue in sin. There is a new nature within the believer that wars against the old nature. There is a a continuous struggle. There is a battle. There is a strife that takes place within the believer that fights with the old nature. And uh, it, it is this war that must be evident in our life if we are to know that we are persevering to the end. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. Romans chapter 7, verse 23, it says, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. And so there is this battle that takes place. There is this continuous struggle that takes place within the believer that shows evidence that we are continuing to persevere to the end. I remember back when I was playing uh, basketball, Uh, back in high school, and uh, I I got so frustrated with my basketball coach because he was always on my case. It was like I couldn't do anything right. He was always critiquing me and telling me something more I could do and something more I could do, and I'm not quite doing this good enough, and I need to improve this. And and I just got so frustrated. I came to him sometimes. I said, Coach, can you lay off a little bit? And you know what he told me? He said, it's when I lay off you need to get scared because I'd given up hope on you. It's that struggle that we have when you're fighting with sin that you know that you are of Christ and that you're continuing to the end. It's when you've given up your heart and say, that's it, I'm not fighting anymore. That's when you need to get scared. 
It's when we're in the fight. It's in when we're in their battle that we know that we are persevering to the end. And so it says he keeps himself. Some of your translations here say keeps him, uh, indicating that God is the one who keeps us. And it is true. Do we keep ourselves? Yes. And does God keep us? Yes. And is it because we are kept by God that we keep ourselves? Yes. And so um, both are correct. And I think it's interesting to note in verse 18. At the very last part, it says, and the wicked one does not touch him. Did you know that it is impossible for the enemy to even tempt us? If it were not, if, if, you know, when God is protecting us and guarding us, it has to be within his bounds. I think we see an example of this uh, in Job. If you remember Job and the situation with Job, uh, Job was a righteous man upon the earth, it says. And it says that Satan was going to and fro upon the earth looking for somebody that he could mess with. And what does it say that God says to Satan? In Job chapter 2 it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So this is chapter 2, chapter 1, what we know about Job. Lost everything, except for his nagging wife. But he loses everything, and, and then he's, he's left there. And so Satan says, well, yeah, that's because you haven't messed with him enough. And so in verse 4 it says, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that the man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. And so what does God do? He says, okay, you can mess with him physically, but do not take his life. And so even the effort that Satan puts into it has to be under the control of God, has to be under the bounds of God. So that the enemy cannot do anything more than what God allows himself. It reminds me of John chapter 10, verse 28. We are told... Uh, Jesus is speaking here. He says, and I have given them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that comforting words? John chapter 17. This is uh, John's. Uh, this is John's record of Jesus's high priestly prayer when he prays uh, for those who would believe and for those who do believe. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you have given to me, I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And then, of course, we are told in the uh, the prayer, the disciples prayer, or sometimes called the Lord's prayer, It says that in the last part, we are to pray what? Deliver me from the evil one. Why? So that we might be preserved to the end. And indeed, he does preserve us to the end. Now, I need to get some new laying hens for um, our our family so that we can have some eggs because uh, my last laying hens did not preserve to the end. (laughs) Uh, in fact, a predator came and uh, ended up getting them all. 
And uh, we haven't had uh, fresh eggs on our, our, I've been having duck eggs, but I haven't had chicken eggs now for quite some time. We've been having to buy our own eggs, which I hate. And uh, so we need to get some new laying hens because they did not persevere until the end. Well, I am confident uh, that uh, I can persevere to the end, but not because I have any more ability to prevent the predator than my laying hens had ability to prevent the predator to come and eat them. In fact, the Bible tells us that, the, that Satan walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Why doesn't he devour us? It, it's not our ability to protect ourselves, but in fact, it is God's ability to preserve us and protect us. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 says this, My son, let them not depart from your eyes. This is speaking about wisdom. And he's telling his son, uh, no wisdom. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, when you lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence, and he will keep your foot from being caught. He is indeed our confidence, and by him we are able to persevere, and by him we are preserved. Are you confident that you will preserve to the end? I hope so. And then fourthly, the true believers can have confidence in their identity in Jesus. In their identity in Jesus. We see this in verse 19. It says, we know, again, you notice that, we know, not just we think, not just we hope, but we know that we are of God. Now, what does it mean that we are of God? I think it's interesting that when we read the scriptures, we need to, we need to emphasize every word that is revealed to us in the scriptures. And so it says that we are of God. Small little word there. Yet it's so important. The word of, actually, um, if you look at the original language, it carries the idea of something from a source. And so we are, we are from the source of God. Now, that does not mean that we are somehow the offspring of God, and so we are somehow divine ourselves. But what it's saying is that we are His possession. That we are His. We are of God. And so we belong to Him. He purchased us with His price, with the price of His blood. It says that He created us. He bought us. And, and we are his. He adopted us when he saved us. And so we belong to him. Our identity is in him. And it says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, again, this is hyperbole, not the whole world, because we're in the world and we're of him. And so what he's saying here is he's saying the, the world system, the, the vast majority of the system is, is opposed to him, does not have the identity with him. But we as Christians do have identity with him. And it says the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. Now, if you're using like the New King James, the King James, I'm using the New King James, you'll notice that the, the word sway under the wicked one or sway under the wicked uh, is um, in italics, which means that it's supplied and that. The original language does not actually have those words. They're supplied there for a better meaning. So uh, we don't know exactly what is being communicated here. It could be that we are, uh, that the whole world lies under the influence, lies under the control of, lies under the dominion of. You see the idea? Um, the sway should not be emphasized as much as it is the one to whom it is under. The whole world lies 
under the wicked one. The Bible identifies the devil in many ways as the one who rules this world. And yet, obviously, God being sovereign and Jesus being sovereign over the whole universe even rules over uh, the Lord of this world, which at this time happens to be the devil. Because our identity is wrapped up in Christ, we are not under the devil, but under the lordship of Christ. There are two identities mentioned in the scriptures, those who are of God and those who are of the devil. Jesus says you are either for me or against me. There are the sheep and there are the goats. There is the wheat and the tares. There is the wheat and the chaff. And so he makes a distinction between the two groups. Either you are of this world, you love this world, you follow the ruler of this world, or you are of God and you follow God and the ruler of of the universe. Because the whole world lies in the realm of the wicked one, we should not be surprised if the world does not love us because it did not love him. We should not be surprised when we are different than the world, when we do not fit in to the world. I don't know how many of you all have ever been overseas to another nation, particularly one that is not used to having Westerners there. Um, I have only been to Romania and Mexico and Canada. So um, Romania was a little bit like this, but even that. Um, you know, we, we still were European to some extent. But if you've ever gone to like a nation like China or a nation in uh, Asia or Africa or something like that where a Westerner would stand out, uh, it makes a huge difference that you're different. And everybody knows that you're different. And that's the picture that I have of us living in the world as Christians. Yes, we may resemble physically like the other people in the world, but we're different spiritually. We're, we're not at home here. This is not our place of rest. We are only passing through. We are aliens in a strange land. Uh, And our confidence needs to be in that identity that we have in him. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 says this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Are you at home in the world? I hope not. I mean, it's okay to have a home in the world. It's okay to enjoy some of the things of life. It's enjoyed, you know, the uh, shorter catechism, the first one says that what is a, uh, the purpose of man? The purpose of man is to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. And, and so it's okay that we live in this world with joy, with happiness. But it's not okay to set our heart on this world because we're not of this world. We're of a different world. Our identity is not here. Our identity is with God. And then number five, true believers can have confidence in their understanding about Jesus. Their understanding about Jesus. We see this in verses 20 and 21. And I want us to notice a couple of things. First of all, I want us to notice the source of this understanding. Notice what it says in verse uh, 20. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So where is it that our understanding comes? It comes from God. He is the source of our understanding. The only reason that we understand anything that we do is because he has opened our understanding. That's why he says in the scriptures, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, who are those who have ears to hear? Those who have been given ears to hear. Those who have been given understanding. Who are those who see? Those who have been given eyes to see. And then also notice the purpose. It says in verse 19, we know that we are of God in the whole world. I'm sorry, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God 
has come and has given us understanding. Why? That we may know Him who is true. The reason He has given us an understanding is so that we may know Him. So we may understand who He is. That we might have confidence in the truth that He has revealed to us. So that we might know Him. And then notice the theology of this confident understanding. It says that we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. By the way, if you're ever wanting to know a good place to turn to tell Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and others who deny the deity of Christ that he is indeed God, it's right here. What does it say? It says very clearly, this is the true God and eternal life. Who is this? Jesus Christ. He is the true God. Tell that to your Muslim, Mormon (laughs) friends, whoever it might be that deny that Jesus is God. And so we have the theology here that we can understand the truth about Jesus, that he is God, that he is one with God, and he is true, the true God. This is the emphasis on truth. He has revealed truth. In fact, what does the scripture say? It says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is indeed true. And so in verse 21, we're told, little children, keep yourself from idols. The worship of anyone but the one true God is idolatry. idolatry. John chapter 10, verse 24 through 30 illustrates this. Uh, when he says, then the Jews surrounded him and said, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Why is it they did not believe? They did not be given understanding. The works that I do, my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He's clear, isn't he? He says that I give to my people eternal life. They hear my voice. I'm one with the Father. He was very clear to them. They just didn't believe it. And so my question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is God? And do you believe that he is able to offer eternal life? And do you believe the understanding of the truth that he has revealed to us in the scriptures? I hope that you believe. I trust that you believe. How do the sheep know the voice of the good shepherd? Because they know him. How do we know the truth revealed to us from the scriptures? How do we understand that? Because we know him. We hear his voice. If you listen to the world and their message today, they will come to the conclusion that Jesus is not God and he is not one with the Father. But that's not what we believe, is it? That's not what the scriptures teach. We believe the truth. We're confident of truth that he is God, that he is one with him, and that he has revealed that to us. And because we believe that, we experience eternal life. True believers can have confidence in their salvation through Jesus, in their prayers in Jesus, in their perseverance through Jesus, in their identity in Jesus, and their understanding about Jesus. Did you see a a pattern there? Do you know what it is? It's all in Jesus. It's in, through, by, and for him. We would have no confidence apart from Jesus. He is the one who is worthy of our praise and our obedience. He is on whom rests all of our hope. He is in whom we have all of our confidence. It reminds me of how we started. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. Put your confidence in Jesus. And so he ends in 1 John, and so we end today. Let's pray. And it's not without cost, for there's many who struggle every day. And I think that it's time we 
start crying for our nation and bow our heads and pray. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? Like a plant one day will wither away And to this world we'll have to say goodbye But just like the plant that withers away We will leave many seeds behind If today you lost your life What would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your legacy?